Hey y'all, it's Kelsey. Welcome back to Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. Because this podcast is deeply dedicated to community care, I just wanted to start with a little check-in. How are y'all doing? How are you caring for yourself? It's honestly been a hard couple weeks. Between the news of Ralph Yarrow getting shot for knocking on the wrong door just 20 minutes north of where I live here in Kansas City, to our state, Missouri's attorney general going after trans folks of all ages, to this legal back and forth from hell that was threatening access to medication abortion nationwide, we've had some really big rocks on our hearts these last couple weeks. It's been a lot. It's been heavy. I feel like as I've been sitting down with my loved ones, there's been a lot of gray, a lot of sadness, a lot of anger. It's okay to not be okay. And I've been getting reminded that by my own friends here who have been busy and sad and mad. And so something that I'm really regularly sitting with right now is how can we show up for ourselves better? How can we be our own reminder that we are good and loved? when everything going on in the external world makes it harder to remember that. I encourage you to take some time to figure out what that looks like for you. For example, for me this past weekend, it meant going to one of the dikiest cover bands in a room full of multi-generational dikes and belting out lyrics to queer anthems and then going from there to dancing at the gay club. So it was just like a little layering cake parfait of gay. I highly recommend it. It felt really, really good. And so this is a reminder to show up for yourself over and over and over and over again. But let's dig into today's episode, shall we? I have been looking forward to this episode for so long. Today, I'm honored to have nurse, author, and advocate Brittany Daniels join us here at Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. Brittany Daniels is an immersed Black and queer community member relentlessly advocating for social justice and equality. Fortified by the stifling opposition she's faced and overcome because of her gender, race, and sexuality, she carries a unique perspective of the challenges encountered by people like her in and out of healthcare. She's the author of the memoir Journal of a Black Queer Nurse, which is available for pre order and will be out nationwide very soon on May 9th. Brittany comes to her work as a nurse who provided care in the emergency department during the pandemic with these lived experiences as a Black and queer person. And this conversation offered me so many points of connection and care. It's a good one, and I'm so glad you can be here with us for it. So let's dig in. So Brittany, I have to open with first just the most loving celebration of all that you are. Because (laughs) today, on the day that we're recording this very podcast, is your birthday. Yes, yes it is. Happy birthday, friend. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. I love birthdays. I love celebrations. So I just want to say how special it is to know you and to spend time with you and to know that our friendship is only in its beginnings. And that's like the best blessing of all. And I hope to know you and celebrate you for so many birthdays to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so grateful to know you as well. And like you said, this is just the beginning and I can't, I can't stress that enough. I keep saying it on social media in my everyday life. This is just the beginning. So Brittany, can you share where you're joining us from? Yes. Today I'm joining us from uh, Chicago, um, where we first met in person. 
Hey, Chicago. Yes. And that's where you call home. Yes. Chicago is my home through all of the, the nursing travels and everything that I've been through. Uh, this has always been my home. I love that. I love Chicago. I love that that's your home. That is where my partner grew up as well. So there's this shared yeah. admiration and appreciation of the space. Absolutely. So um, I'm going to open with a question that is now going to be one that I ask all of the guests of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit, yes. which is about the concept of queerness. So queer is not just an adjective or a noun. Queer is also a verb. What are you queering in your life right now? So for me now, I am queering healthcare delivery. Mm. I am a nurse. I have been a nurse since 2017. And for the last few years, I've been spending every single minute of my life in and out of the hospital trying to disrupt the social norms in healthcare and the way that we deliver healthcare. That's beautiful. That's what, okay, that's what I'm just learning that queerness is over and over again. Like every day I wake up and I learn a new thing about queerness. Yeah. And the one that surprises me and delights me the most is this redefinition that queerness offers every day, right? Every single day. Like we get to choose to be and do and feel whatever the fuck we want. Exactly. Despite what everyone thinks is air quotes normal yes <laughs> right you know we live our lives the way that we feel is appropriate for us and what's going to bring us the most joy mm -hmm. and so you're bringing that to healthcare, which is a space that I mean historically has not been centered on joy right and has not necessarily been centered on uh being centered and rooted in feeling right uh, and so what a beautiful way to go about your work and to be a disruptive force in everything that you're doing. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. So we met through this very ever queer web of the abortion advocacy space and abortion work. Um, so both you and my partner, Iman, share this mentor and chosen family member, Shout out to the ever glorious Mandy Gittler Thanks. and her family and the family Mama. that she's welcomed us into. Absolutely. Uh, and she is who glued our stories together and how we met. So I'd love to start with this kind of place of an, an origin story. Um, could you share with me your story of coming to medicine to begin with? Yes. Um, and coming specifically to the work that you're doing now, I know that you have been deeply involved in emergency medicine work, but you also had a a little overlap in the abortion in the abortion yeah. work as well. Yes, absolutely. I call myself a lifer um, regarding abortion work. <laughs> I may okay, like, <laughs> I may step away for a little bit, right? But I will always come back. Yes, and. Abortion work is something that I will never stop participating in. Mm. Um, it's something that I am passionate about, but it's something that I haven't always been passionate about. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about my journey and how I came to medicine, of course, like you asked. So imagine high school, Brittany, like French braids and like beads on the end of uh, each braid. And okay, I'm seeing it. 
this is three braces, right? <laughs> I had a lot of teeth in my mouth, way too many. <laughs> uh, I had a mandatory meeting with my guidance counselor my junior year of high school. And the idea behind this meeting was to discuss what my future plans were. So I sat outside of the office waiting my turn because there was still a student in the, in the office. And I saw this, this tower with a bunch of pamphlets on it. Mm -hmm. So I was bored and I, I wasn't allowed to be on my phone. So I uh, spun the little tower around and I found that there was a pamphlet with this black girl on it. And she had an axe over her shoulder and she had the turnout gear, the firefighter gear on, and she had a firefighter helmet on. Okay. She's like, oh shit, that, that's really cool. Like, I didn't know, like, people with vaginas could be firefighters. Yes. I had no idea, right? And so I was like, bet, this this is it right here. And, you know, so let, let's write representation, hashtag representation. So <laughs> I went in that meeting and I was if like, if it I, wasn't for the black girl on that pamphlet, yeah, yeah, who knows where I would be? Who God knows. Um, so I went in the office, told her that's what I wanted to do. Fast forward, you know, two years, I started participating with this training academy in Aurora. Okay. Um, I was out in the suburbs at the time uh, for firefighting. And I ended up getting hired onto this little part-time per diem fire department after I graduated high school. And I loved it, but I didn't find it as fulfilling, as rewarding. And honestly, I fucking hated being around white men all the time. Yes. And the, the issue with being on the fire department is that I couldn't just be a firefighter. I also had to be an EMT. And for me, I'm like, well, why do I have to do that? And they said, I have no choice. You have to go to EMT school. So I did. And during EMT school, you have to spend 40 hours in the emergency department. And I did my 40 hours in the ER and that changed the entire trajectory of my, of my career. Yes. I fell in love with the ER. I loved every single minute of it. I loved the diversity of patients. I loved the, the the speed at which, you know, the care kind of took place and that every patient had a different, you know, thing going on. So yeah. for me, uh, I knew at that moment that I wanted to transition into a career in medicine. I didn't know what that looked like at the time, what that was going to look like exactly, um, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I became an ER tech. So I worked in the ER assisting nurses, loved doing that, and then decided, um, you know, this is just what I'm going to do, right? I was like, I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to go to school anymore. And so one day a doctor asked me to put a liquid Band-Aid on a patient, and I did. And the next shift that I went in, I was fired for doing it. So for doing a liquid Band-Aid. Yes, yes, yes. Mama was fired. So I... <laughs> I was <laughs> and you know, this is young Brittany, right? I'm only 20 or 21. And so I'm applying for all these jobs, trying to get hired at a different hospital. And everyone would ask me, well, what happened at your last job? And I would tell them the truth. I, I applied a liquid bandaid. I was terminated for working outside of my <laughs> I'm school. Sorry. Practice. It's not funny because <laughs> but it's funny. It is. It is. No, I laugh about it to, to this day. I laugh about it. Part, and, and when I tell folks this story, they're like, why the fuck did you tell them you got fired? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, I, I, 
honesty, it has always been one of those things that my family has always ingrained in me. Like you do not lie, do not lie. Yeah. Right. And so I got turned down job after job. And finally, um, I had an interview at Planned Parenthood and it was for a medical assistant job. And okay. I'm like, you know, I want to get back in scrubs. I want to get back to patient care. This might not be the emergency room, but you know, at least I'll be taking care of patients. And, you know, honestly, before that, before my interview at Planned Parenthood, I never, I never really considered the impact of abortion work, right? The the impact of access to reproductive health care. And after applying for that job, I like dug into Google and like, you know, what are abortions and who needs abort, right? And, yes. and so <laughs> that really started my entire relationship with reproductive health care. Spoiler and alert, everyone needs abortions. That's what the Google search says. <laughs> Spoiler alert, yes, everybody, exactly. And so, you know, I told the managers that I was fired from my last job. They hired me. Um, and I was just so grateful that they they gave me a chance despite my flaws, despite my past. And that really uh, started this entire journey of me building community with people who have not the same, but similar, you know, thoughts and perspectives on marginalized people and the care that they need and the importance of that you know I go into every situation in healthcare with a little bit of uh like a a wall up because I'm I'm nervous and I know that because I'm black and queer they don't see me as the same they don't respect me the same as they do their my white my white counterparts Mm -hmm. and so I feel like I have to work harder to gain their respect and to gain their trust but there's something about the world of abortion where we're we're, we're all just like we all get it we all get each other right (laughs) despite where we come from despite what we look like we're all just like yeah I see you I see you (laughs) well something that I feel like I've gleaned from being around abortion providers for the last seven years in my work and then having the total privilege and honor of being able to get to know more abortion workers, folks in clinics across the country. And then in turn, people who are having abortions is we all see ourselves in each other, right? Like the person who walks into the abortion clinic who needs an abortion is us. Exactly. And there's no separation. And what I've seen and I think what I believe is that it's one of the closest models in healthcare of like actual community care exactly it's not perfect capitalism still entrenches <laughs> the system <laughs> absolutely absolutely right and and you know especially doing I mean I tell you what though doing the work at at Planned Parenthood uh shout out to Planned Parenthood Illinois my babies um we work so hard to make sure that every person who crosses the threshold into that clinic or calls that clinic, um, any clinic in the state of Illinois and any clinic in the Midwest, that they have all the resources that they, that they need. Yes. You can't yeah. get a ride. Cool. Let's figure out how to get one for you. Yep. You know, you don't have a place to stay. Bet we got you. We'll, we'll book a hotel. That's Whereas right. at the hospital, it's more of 
sucks, sucks for you, right? And that seems to be the the nature of the hospital is they want you're there, we take care of you. But then once we're done taking care of you, we have nothing to give to you. And that has to change. So I find myself often like booking an Uber for a patient with my my own Uber account. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to leave you here without a way to get home. Right. right. So it's just, yeah, we have a lot, we have a long way to go. We, we do. Long- we do have a long way to go. Um, I just want to take a step back because after you then showed up at Planned Parenthood, you continued to have a robust career after that. And it, it led you back to the emergency room where you started and where you really kind of had this, passion um can you talk about what it was like working in the emergency department during COVID yes um it's so wild because I was actually in California okay when um when when the pandemic um erupted and I was actually planning on coming home to Chicago that month March of 2020 I was planning on coming home And I was going to transition into working full-time at Planned Parenthood doing conscious sedation. Okay. As opposed to working in the hospital. But when the pandemic started, surgeries were getting canceled. And so CRNAs were losing work at the hospital. So they were trying to make up for that work by being at Planned Parenthood more often. So I actually had, I forfeited my position so that they could you know, provide their their uh, sedation or anesthesia care there since they weren't able to do it at the hospital. So I stayed in San Bernardino um, working out in that area. And my God, it was at first, it was a culture shock because it felt like nobody was coming into the hospital because of okay. the lockdown. Right. And so the hospital was sending people home. They were canceling people's shifts. But then very quickly, it took a sharp left and the nursing homes were getting hit so bad that we were getting patients, I mean, back to back to the point where we were running codes at the same time to the point where, you know, we only have so many defibrillators in the emergency department. We were using all of them and trying to figure out how we could use more. You remember that we were running out of ventilators and at some point, the morgue was full our morgue was full and so not only do we not have resources and enough people to help take care of these people these patients in emergency situations but we also didn't have the resources to help each other when patients would pass so mm-hmm. all of the the care that we call it postmortem care okay. um, after a patient passes making sure that we have all of their belongings settled uh, and taking them to the morgue we didn't have, we didn't have help. And so I found myself having to, you know, turn, turn these patients over, um, after, after death by myself. And so I was having terrible back pain. Um, my feet were hurting. Um, and at one point I went to take a patient to the morgue and there was nowhere to put them and lining hallways, you know, with, with bodies. And it was just, it was devastating. It was devastating. Right. Because what brings so many people to being a healthcare provider to begin with is is to hopefully try and bring a little more humanity to the process. And then here you were forced by external circumstances to do exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. And 
Ugh, it's so fucked. I'm so sorry that that was something that you were holding and living through. And I know that we're still living in the ripple effects and the repercussions of all of that today. And absolutely burnout that we're seeing in healthcare because of just how much y'all have lived through the last few years. Um, we can't not say it and cannot talk <laughs> about it, but you have been talking about it and you wrote a fucking book about it. <laughs> I did. So I your did. book journal of a black queer nurse comes out in May of 2023, AKA this year, this AKA year. very soon. <laughs> Have a countdown app on my phone. Yes. As you should, because this is so exciting. Um, I maybe have, I'm just going to say it. I did get to read the book already. Yes. <laughs> it is beautiful. It is funny. It has taught me so much. It like ripped out my guts at certain parts. Yes. Um, I saw myself and I saw so many people that I love in this book. Uh, the way that you just welcome the reader in to your life is so generous. Uh, mm -hmm. You offer so much in, of yourself in this book. Um, so I'd love to hear you reflect on how you knew you had a story that was meant to be told what it was like to really put pen to page or to type or however the fuck you did your writing process <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and write your story into existence and just share a little bit more about what you're excited for as you get closer and closer to pub day. Yes. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Um, so full transparency, this actually started, the reason why it's titled journal of a black queer nurse is because this derives from a journal so as a nurse, I felt like, you know, I need to have this little book with me in my pocket so that I can remember everything, right? Because again, and this all comes back to my identity and the intersections of my identity. I'm Black, I'm a lesbian, I have tattoos, I have short hair. So people doubt me. They doubt me before I ever open my mouth. They doubt me before I ever perform any task. And so I didn't want to slip up, right? I didn't want any mishaps, any mistakes. So I carried this book with me and it started off as me writing things like epi is, uh, IV epi is for codes. I am epi <laughs> is for allergies, right? Just those little reminders. Don't transfer a patient without a consent sign. Uh, the the break room door code is one, 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 right? Like those, those <laughs> literally what was in that book. And that slowly transitioned. Um, you know, I moved through, as a young person, I moved through the world with the belief that the world didn't care about my story, mm. right? I grew up thinking that my goal was to stay alive, stay out of jail, and not be homeless. Mm. That's what I grew up thinking, right? And so as my career kind of evolved and as my my knowledge base kind of grew I realized holy shit like people deal with mistreatment maltreatment um just all of these terrible disparities that exist in healthcare they affect people every single day and who is the person 
advocating for these folks, right? Us. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Some of us, not all of us, unfortunately. But I wanted to take it a step further, not just advocate for them in the moment, in real time, but also share a variation of these stories to bring awareness to what is happening within the walls of the hospital. Yeah. And one of the things that patients tell me all the time is, God, I wish, and this is not, this is not a flex. I swear to God, it's not a flex. (laughs) They say, God, I wish there were more nurses like you. Okay. And so I don't want to be, you know, like a nursing instructor. I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I'm passionate about, but I'm thinking to myself, how can I, how can I change or how can I allow someone else to step into my shoes and see the actual impact that what we do has on other people, on our communities. And so that's what made me decide, fuck it. I'm taking all these little journals. I have a stack of like eight of them. And I just started writing. I just started typing on my computer. Each little each little page ends up being a vignette in the book, right? There's no sequence, you know, whatsoever. It's just, these are interactions that I've had. These are experiences that I've lived. And again, like you said, you saw yourself and people that you love in these stories. And I feel like that's the goal, right? I want people to see themselves in this book. I want people to see people that they love and care about in this book so that we can all start to have these conversations about what we can do to better support one another. Absolutely. And the, that is the format of the book. There are these blips in time that probably take place over the course of I don't know 45 seconds of your life (laughs) yeah but they represent something so much bigger than that they represent so many uh failures of individuals that you interacted with which represented failures of systems that we're all a part of and living in and it became so clear to me so quickly that this book is about now on earth, right? Like all of us living at the intersection of a lot of these oppressive forces crumbling around us. And a symptom of that crumbling is people trying to grasp power harder. Yes. And one system that I think does that all the time where they are trying to just flex in the face of failure is white supremacy. Yes. And so something I know that you explore in your book is how white supremacy and whiteness has poisoned the well of so many systems, including the medical industrial complex. And as you've personally experienced and witnessed racism and white supremacy harm people Mm -hmm. as they have tried to heal and get well and to do their work as healthcare providers, can you share a little bit about your hopes for the future of healing and medicine? Absolutely. And wow, that's an amazing question. My hope for the future, the future of healing and medicine is that more people will take the initiative to disrupt the malignancy of the social norms that exist within healthcare. Mm -hmm. The, the, um, this is how it's always been sort of mentality 
right? My hope is that more people will push against that. One of the things they teach us in nursing school is question everything, right? You don't just blindly follow what anyone tells you to do, right? And for for me, that includes policies and, you know, the again, just the community norms that exist within healthcare and especially in emergency medicine. So the the idea of, oh, that's what we've always done. No, fuck that. Why why is that the way you've always done it? Right. And how can we do it? What the reason why we have police, right, is because a long time ago we wanted to make sure these slaves, when they got out, they didn't get out of hand. Right. And so right, right. that's how they've always done it. So we can't we can't use that as an excuse anymore. We have to we have to examine why we're doing what we're doing and we really have to challenge it. And so my hope for the future of healing is that more people will start to consider that in their everyday practices when especially the change makers right it it trickles down from the top so our hospital administrators our lawmakers right don't get me started on our lawmakers right now but um (laughs) you know these 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 doctors and um these providers they are so they are so desperate to check boxes right so that they can finish their list of things that they need to do for someone when they're under their care and they lose sight of who they're checking the boxes for. Yep. Right. And how checking those boxes makes people feel. Mm. And that's, that's my hope is that people will take more time to practice more empathy again, to disrupt those social norms and once we do that, we'll be able to revolutionize medicine. That's what we got to do. Okay, you said don't get you started about lawmakers, but it felt like an invitation to do so. <laughs> <laughs> so outside of medicine, I know that medicine and policy and politics are very intertwined because unfortunately we live in a society where politicians have decided that they are somehow now experts in medicine and are trying to like define what y'all are doing, which yes, that's one of the greatest comedic acts of our lifetime. (laughs) Um, But you are in this field doing this work at a time when there is so much attempted influence from outside actors. What is it like to be in a career that is influenced, unfortunately, so much by people who aren't in the room with you every day and who don't see the care that you're trying to provide and the humanity behind it and are and this is not just your work, but like who you are as a person. So many people who don't know you, don't know about your life, don't know about the way you love, don't know about your family. And they're trying to fuck with all of us. Exactly. Can you just reflect on like what it's like to be a human right now with politicians and policymakers trying to make these corrupt decisions that are influencing how we can show up and live? It's it's actually one of the most frustrating things that <laughs> I think about on a day to day, which is why, you know, I've been spending so much time trying to bring to light 
the issues, especially taking place here in Chicago, where I live, this is my home, right? Um, not that other other states and, and communities don't matter to me, but you know, my my goal right now is to to educate the folks around me and my community so that they understand how, the impact, right? of these bills that are are attempting to be passed and this legislation that folks, especially oppressive legislation that these folks are trying to put into place. Mm -hmm. So for me is, I mean, again, you know, there's, there's an intersection, right? I'm a nurse, I'm a community member, I'm black, right? So all these things sort of, they all play into the way that I move about the world. So not just in the hospital, but outside of the hospital. So what does that look like? That looks like me having conversations when I'm at the barbershop about what, you know, is everyone taking their their blood pressure medicine? Right. Oh, you're not? Why not? Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just sort of working to make sure that because no one is focusing on community education and, you know, illness prevention, disease prevention, you know, what can I do to sort of do my part. And, and then of course, as a nurse, making sure that I'm doing that when I'm in the hospital, but I'm privileged enough to be in a doctoral program right now for, um, for nursing for my DNP. And congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. The course that I'm in currently, I'm in two, one of them is a health policy course. And so we're required to do 140 hours of policy work. And so mama's been writing to, to the senators. I've been tracking these bills and it's really, op I mean, I, I, I was aware before, but my God, I'm aware now. Right? I was about to say, <laughs> welcome to my nightmare. <laughs> exactly. And so that's really lit a fire under me to, to be involved and to write these letters and to be aware of, you know, of what, is going on in the political world, uh, especially regarding medicine, especially regarding the, you know, the maternal fetal death rate, the life expectancy gap, you know, all of those things and sort of thinking about what can I do uh, as a community member, as a constituent to help, you know, catalyze change. Absolutely. And that's something that I think about a lot in my own work as I work with other healthcare providers who are seeing the real life impact of these policies. Like these people are, are making these laws trapped away in these like weird dungeons and yes. then they have this real life implication that they don't really think about of like what's this going to look like in real life with real people right. and you someone who sees the actual impact of these policies reflecting and telling them like hey when you signed that paper here's what got fucked up and exactly. here's how many people died as a result because that's actually what it comes down to right and like yes. here's how many people completely had so many barriers put in, in place and that they can't even access the care that they need right now because of you. Mm -hmm. Like calling them in to be accountable to their mm -hmm. decision-making is so critical. And so while I know it's really frustrating, I'm really glad that that's something that you're doing right now because your experiences are the reality uh, of all of this and they need to be accountable to the reality that they're causing and that they're participating in. Absolutely. Um, so a little bit of a left turn here. Um, <laughs> back to the book. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, just wanting to go back to the book. Uh, love that so well, me too. Uh, <laughs> one theme that I just couldn't help but witness throughout the, the book was trauma. 
And I want to get a little bit more specific about what I mean by that is that like, as an emergency department nurse, you were regularly faced every single day with, of course, the urgency of bodily trauma. So literally like someone coming in on the brink of something real bad. Right. And you needing to react very quickly with what are we going to do right now to save this person? What are we going to do to keep them alive? And then what are we going to do to help them be well going forward? Right. But then there was also this pervasiveness of the racist, sexist, and homophobic trauma that you, your patients, and your colleagues were under every day in your work. So all of us, we all carry the traumas. We like collect them in our little backpack that we carry throughout life. Yes. And they're traumas either by the harm that's been caused by individuals or by systems. And that builds up over our lifetime. And as queer people and just as humans, many of us have histories with this trauma. And I, I'm hoping that you could reflect a little bit on your positionality and your relationship with trauma, given what you do and who you are. And more importantly, and where I want to like actually take this conversation is like, where do you find disruptive forces and powers to redefine how you continue thriving through that trauma? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. My backpack of trauma goes everywhere with me Mm. and I use it as a tool, mostly to help others heal not from their trauma, right? Because I can't heal anyone's trauma in the short amount of time that I'm taking care of them. Right. But I can share my experiences with them. I can share what I've been through so that we can connect, right? And I'm a firm believer that that sharing stories with one another is healing. Yes. And it helps us grow. And for me, I try to find community in my patients and I want them to find community in me when when I'm at the bedside I never stand over anyone Mm. I always sit down if I can't find a seat I'll kneel I'll get on my knees which uh, is is something that a lot of folks won't do they're not willing to do um, simply because they don't want to get dirty but to me being at eye level with someone is much more important than worrying about the dirt that's going to accumulate (laughs) on my pants, right? (laughs) So (laughs) the way that I have worked through my trauma, obviously, aside from therapy and medication. Shout out to therapy. Shout out to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Love my therapist is finding, finding community and understanding that I am not alone and taking that with me to work so that patients understand that they are not alone so that their families understand that they're not alone and I use my trauma again as a tool to make sure that others feel supported feel safe and feel heard because I feel like that is the most important underpinning of medicine right like you have you have to feel safe if you don't feel safe, there's absolutely no way that we can heal you. And so that's what I do. I I use the community that I've gathered to 
to really grow my community within the hospital and to help my patients grow theirs as well. I uh, was so moved by this. I mean, it sounds like a, a mushy way of moving through the world, but it's really powerful, this making space for other people's stories and actually listening to other people's stories. And a number of the vignettes that you share have to do with people facing their own traumas and the defense mechanisms that they built up like substance use. Yes. And how many folks show up in the emergency room who are at a pivotal point in their journey with their relationship with substance. And yeah. as someone who's been sitting in that myself this last year, I couldn't help but just see that that, that could have been me. Yeah. Um, and how fortunate I am to have had people who were using tools like the tools that you use of compassion, of empathy, of listening, of making space, of validating fears and hopes um, mm. and and activating that communal care and that energy to help people feel believed in in where they hope that they want to go. Absolutely. And that brings us to so beautifully our last question, um, which is about just that, the power of community. Yes. Uh, because something I've found so, so healing as a queer person is that just inherent and intrinsic power that we have built for ourselves and have made ourselves in queer community. You have this wickedly smart, dope spouse who does organizing work yes. for queer community in Chicago. You have this queer chosen family you have your amazing biological family, your sister, who I know you love so much. Yes. But it takes a lot of work to build and maintain these nurturing queer relationships that disrupt what the cishet white, quote unquote, American dream tells us that love or intimate relationships or friendships or family are supposed to, again, in quotes, look like. So can you share with me what it's been like to build this intentional community that can hold you and that you can hold back? Yes. Um, whew. Kelsey, you never lie. <laughs> <laughs> you never lie. I love how you mentioned that our, our queer community disrupts, right? That traditional uh, American dream, nuclear family yeah. bullshit that we were all taught growing up. Um, but, uh, the fact is that, is that none of that was meant for us, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. meant for the, it was not meant for the blacks. It wasn't meant for the queers. It wasn't meant for women, right? Yes. <laughs> it was meant for cis, white, het, men, period. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for us, we have cultivated our aspirations by, creating this unrelenting, non-judgmental love for one another. And it's just one of those things where you make eye contact with another queer person and you just know, like, I see you. <laughs> I'm, right? and I'm, so, I'm, so, <laughs> I'm so lucky to have found that. And what you said about Sadi and my wife and shout out to Meshed El Rabia, shout out to my wife, Saria. 
um shout out to the queer muslim community my god when i thought i thought that being you know a little black kid whose mom thought i was trans just because i liked the girls mm. like i thought that was bad i did not realize the depth right of whoo the depth of the issue of religion being added on top of that yes right and so you know her growing up and coming out to her family was beyond anything I can ever imagine as far as difficulty and there was being queer in a Muslim community is just not a thing right it's not it, it it's not a concept it doesn't yeah. it doesn't it does not compute so for her um this resulted in a, a very traumatic childhood yeah. and her ability to you know navigate the complex nature of that situation that just fills me with hope right that strength is within reach for all of us mm -hmm. so you know to build to build the community that I've built and have been welcomed into has been surreal. And the way that we show up for one another is unmatched. I love it, you know, exchanging the genuine love with other people who have felt that same nagging feeling of not being good enough or not being normal enough to even share space with other people and so I mean like I've who I've met business owners I've met creatives I'm I've met artists I've met people who I've never even imagined that as just some black nurse that I was I never felt like these were circles right that I was important enough to 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 be in mm -hmm. and when i say that i've been welcomed with with open arms is an understatement and it really has it really has changed my life in a way that it's allowed me to perceive myself as someone who is important someone who matters you're someone who gives love so openly and so generously and something that I've found, and it seems maybe is the case here, is sometimes the folks who are able to give love the most have the most difficulty receiving the love that they're so yeah. deserving of. And yeah. so I am so just moved and heartened by the fact that you have found safety in receiving the love that you deserve from this community and from these relationships. They're so lucky to have you in their lives. And I know you feel so lucky to have them in yours. Thank you. So that's the end of our conversation here. I could talk to you all day long, all week <laughs> long. Um, but I do just want to pass it back to you one more time in case you want to share any more about where should people look for your book or where should people find you on social media? Yeah, thank you. So I've been getting yelled at a lot for changing my Instagram handle, but I made it more <laughs> accessible. Um, my Instagram handle is at black 
underscore queer underscore nurse mm-hmm. um, people will call me black queen nurse or black oh. queen. So the, the, the r and the n was confusing folks so i wanted to make it more clear that i am a black queer nurse um and the book is there's there's actually a really cool pre-order campaign going on at the black queer owned bookstore in Chicago, semicolon bookstore. Yes. Uh, they're running a campaign. So all of the books that are purchased for pre-order through their website directly are going to be signed by me um, prior to being shipped out. And, you know, otherwise common notions, that's my publisher, shout out to common notions. I love them so much. They've been so supportive and my God, I'm I'm controlling. I'm a controlling person, <laughs> right? It's why I can never let someone drive me. I had to drive. And so they have been so patient with me because when I say I'm I'm very picky and you know the with this whole process of the book, I'm just like, no, change that, change that, fix that. Let's not do that. Let's do this. And so they've been so patient with me and I'm just so grateful for it. So again, shout out to Kevin Notions. Uh shout out to Semicolon for for being willing to host my my pre-order campaign and, you know, commonotions.com uh, or commonotions press, sorry. Um, or you can go to blackqueernurse.co uh, and you can find all that information there as well. Fantastic. I'm going to put all of these links in the show notes so that people have easy accessibility to them. But thank you, Brittany, for your time. Our time is the most precious gift that we can give people. And the fact that you gave yours to me today, I just am so grateful and so thankful. So um, I hope you take care and that you have a really wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you, Coast. Wow. Yes, 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 yes. If you loved this conversation as much as I did, be sure to follow Brittany across her social media platforms and pre-order her book, Journal of a Black Queer Nurse. You'll also see it at bookstores across the country very, very soon in the next couple weeks here. And so be sure to continue supporting her work. The book is exceptional. I couldn't put it down. And all of the information about the book and Brittany and where to follow her are in the show notes for today's episode. If you've been enjoying Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit, I'd love to hear from you. Email me ideas for future episodes. Send me some feedback or even just send me your favorite snacks that you've been munching on while you listen to the show at coolqueersdoingcoolshit at gmail.com. As always, I want to end with a big fat thank you. Thank you for coming back for more and for being hungry for this content. Thank you for being an extension of my community. Our time is the most precious gift we have, and I cannot be more grateful that you offered me yours. Okay, all you queers, take care. Be well and do something that makes you laugh.